0: 1 Samuel chapter 4. What am I going to read from, Amelia? Okay, and Verse one. Samuel revealed the word of the Lord to all of Israel. Then the Israelites went out to fight the Philistines. There's a sentence missing. It's not in the Hebrew text, but it is in the Greek text. In the old, you know, 200 years before Jesus came, the Hebrew scholars got together and they have another sentence in there which basically says, in those days the Philistines assembled for war against Israel. Then the Israelites went out to fight the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer. There's that dreadful word, Ebenezer. Do you know that hymn? Here I raise my Ebenezer. I don't know what the hymn is, but that's in. It's a line in the hymn. And everybody goes, what's an Ebenezer? Well, there it is there. It's one of those things. They camped at Ebenezer. It means a stone of help. And the Philistines camped at a place called Aphek. The Philistines arranged their forces to fight Israel. They lined up against one another. And as the battle clashed together and spread out, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men in the battle line that day. That's a significant loss, isn't it? We have two soldiers killed in Afghanistan and we hear about it and are devastated by it. 4,000 men in a day. When the army came back to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why did the Lord let us be defeated today by the Philistines? Let's take with us the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh. When it is with us, it will save us from the hand of our enemies. So the army sent to Shiloh and they took from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts who sits between the cherubim. And now the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, uh, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord arrived at the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the ground shook or, if you like, the mountains re-echoed the sound when the philistines heard the sound of the shout they said what is this loud shout in the camp of the hebrews and then they realized or discovered that the ark of the lord had arrived at the camp the philistines were scared because they thought the gods had come to the camp and they said too bad for us we'll never see anything we've never seen anything like this too bad for us woe to us Who can deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all sorts of plagues in the desert. Be strong and act like men, you Philistines, or else you will wind up serving the Hebrews the way they served you. Act like men and fight. So the Philistines fought. Israel was defeated and they all ran home. The slaughter was very great, 30,000 Foot soldiers fell in battle. The Ark of God was taken and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were killed. On that day, a Benjamite ran from the battle lines and came to Shiloh. His clothes were torn, he had dirt on his head. When he arrived in Shiloh, Eli was sitting in his chair watching by the side of the road for he was very worried about the Ark of God. As the man entered the city to give his report, the whole city cried out, When Eli heard the outcry, he said, What's the commotion? The man quickly came and told Eli. Now, Eli was 98 years old and his eyes looked straight ahead. He was unable to see. The man said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle lines just today. I fled from the battle lines. Eli said, What's the result? How did things go, my son? The messenger replied, Israel has fled from the Philistines the army has suffered a great defeat. Your two sons, Hophni and Phineas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward from his chair beside the gate. He broke his neck and died for he was old and well built. <laughs> Heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, close to giving birth. When she heard that the Ark of God was captured, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she doubled over, gave birth. But her labour pains were too much for her. She was dying. The woman who were with her said, Don't be afraid, you've given birth to a son. But she did not reply or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod saying, the glory has departed from Israel, referring to the capture of the ark and the death of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured. It's been taken into exile. There are two other announcements I need to give and I apologise for not doing so before. I don't think we have announced in this congregation yet for John and Jeanette Mason, our grandparents, again, selfishness really on their behalf. But Richard and Tanya had twins. We all know that, don't we? But I apologise to them, an opportunity for them to brag and boast about two lovely little boys, Oscar and Thomas. They were born three weeks ago, something like that. Um, A couple of Sundays ago, anyway. Um, Yep. Oscar was about 50 centimetres and Thomas was a bit longer, I think, wasn't he? 51, 52. I forget their weights. They're not my grandchildren, I don't need to know. Um. (laughs) But also Martin and Leanne Scarce. Do you know them? Martin and Leanne come to our service. They often come 8.30 service. Are they here this morning? I've left my phone at home, so I've left all the details. So Warren and Margie, if you can help me, and you can't, um, they've had a, a little granddaughter, something Leanne, oh, I can't remember the details, a little girl and Leanne obviously named after, this is their eldest son, Josh, his little girl. So we rejoice with them in the birth of a beautiful little girl, not as beautiful as Violet, but beautiful nonetheless. So congratulations to the grandparents and my apologies particularly to the Masons for Forgetting to announce that a couple of weeks ago. God answers prayer and receives praise. 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2. God judges sin. 1 Samuel 2, 3 and today, 4. God is the one who is directing history towards one ultimate purpose of establishing his kingdom with his king reigning on the throne. In this chapter, we have the Philistine raiders and the lost ark. Oh, come on, that took me a long time. (laughs) I thought that was clever when I read it. Chapter 3 ends, just to note, not a main point, but Warren Weasby points out. Um, chapter 3 ends with the word of God being restored to Israel. Samuel is now a prophet and 321, as the Lord is now appearing to him again at Shiloh and God is speaking through Samuel. Chapter 4, verse 1, Samuel revealed the word of the Lord to all of Israel and then Warren Weasby says, as soon as God reveals to us his word, then the enemy will gather against us to attack us. It's a good observation, isn't it? When God speaks, you can expect opposition. That's not quite the application, but it's nonetheless an interesting insight. No sooner does God begin to reveal his word to his people, than the enemy shows up. We can expect the same thing in our life. It's interesting, over the next three chapters that have been so filled with Samuel being prepared for his role, chapters 4, 5 and 6, Samuel disappears. He's not mentioned because the focus is now not on Samuel, but it's on the Philistines and particularly on the Ark. It's almost like the author of Samuel has taken another story from another source and he's cut and pasted it because it fits the story that he wants us to hear. And Samuel will not reappear until chapter 7, where by this stage he is now an older man. Years will have passed. So we need to pay attention. It's one story, 4, 5 and 6. We'll do 4 today and and five and six next Sunday morning. I think Josh Tan is doing five and six next Sunday morning. And I don't know if Josh is here this morning, but I'm going to pinch some of his thunder. The Philistines are mentioned throughout the Bible, even back in the days of Abraham. And 150 times in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. They were a sea-going people who came from Crete and from the Aegean, from halfway across the Mediterranean and they had moved, a very sophisticated, very uh, gifted, technologically advanced, militarily advanced group of people who sought to invade Egypt, got defeated, ended up on the, the coast of um, where Israel had their land and they established their own presence and it was their intent to try and expand their land and so there were always continual skirmishes between the Philistines and Israel. They were the rod of God to bring discipline against his people whenever they were disobedient to him. God would use the Philistines like a barometer of what's the pulse of the people of God? Are they walking in obedience to him? Israel would reign over them. They're mentioned in the days of the judge Shamgar. He killed 600 Philistines. Samson dealt with the Philistines. Saul will in the chapters of 1 Samuel and David, of course, We'll fight the Philistines and the most famous Philistine of all. His name is Goliath, a Philistine. Israel's in the Promised Land. They're in the place where God designed for them, wanted them to be, but they are not walking in obedience. They are not faithful. It's been a cycle, a pattern through the book of Judges. We pick up the pattern that uh, whenever they walked with God, things would go well, there would be peace. But whenever they sinned and departed from God, God would send an invading army to discipline. It's what's happening here. These Philistines are the rod of God to get Israel's attention, to bring them back on course to him. But, of course, Israel misunderstands that. They read it completely the other way. Afek, where this is going to take place, is sort of like up the north. I haven't got a map, but if you think of a picture of uh, the, ho- uh, the Holy Land then you have Jerusalem and 20 miles north of Jerusalem is Shiloh and then go towards the coast. It's about 20 miles from Shiloh to Ebenezer, Afek. They're pretty close together, a couple of miles apart. This is taking place over on the coast north of the land of Philistines and then this is an incursion where they're trying to advance and so Israel assembles their troops, lines up against them and there is a battle like you see on the movies. These two armies lined up. And one day someone says charge and these two leaders, these two nations charge at each other and there is this clash. And when the dust finally settles and Israel retreats to their camp and the Philistines retreat to their camp. It's interesting, the Philistines don't chase them. They obviously suffered some losses as well. And Israel, when they get back to their tents and the elders gather together and the numbers are counted and there are 4,000 people And the elders in this war council ask exactly the right question. This is the question the people of God should always ask. When disaster comes, when things don't work out right, the question is in verse um, 4, isn't it? Can't say it for looking. Why has God done this? Why did God do this? Why has God allowed this? Why is the door closed? Why are my plans interrupted? What does God want of me? That's always the right question when tragedy asks. What's God doing? Because God had struck Israel. It was the Lord's doing. Leviticus 26, verse 14 to 17 says, God speaking to his people, if you will not obey me, then you will be struck down by your enemies. He you already told them ahead of time, this is what would happen. Deuteronomy 28, verse 25. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemy. Right question. God, why did you do this? Joshua chapter 7. Joshua, incredibly victorious, with the ark of God going around Jericho 13 times, once a day for six days and seven times on the seventh day, 13 times in all. The walls collapse, they go in and there's a massive slaughter and Israel gets off without a scratch, it would seem. Incredible victory. Very next one, small city, AI, where they get defeated and they are shocked because somebody in the camp, Achan, had done what he hadn't, wasn't supposed to do. He had committed a sin, offended God, and his whole family were in on it. And God was not pleased and the nation was defeated. Joshua's response is the right response. On his knees, before God, fasting, calling the leaders with him, let's seek God's face. Lord, why? You promised that we would be Why the defeat? What are you trying to say to us? And God tells them it's because there is sin. Locate the sinner and remove them. That's what the elders should have done here. Why, Lord? There was no searching of heart. There's no confession of sin. There's no seeking God's face. There's no going to Samuel, through whom the word of the Lord was now coming. He's not consulted. They make their own decision. They rely on their own ideas and their own plans. I remember a Bible story where Moses used and Joshua used the ark and they took that into battle and they won. Let's do that. Let's copy them. So they send for the ark down at Shiloh, 20 mile trip. They send a couple of people to go and get it. Where is the ark kept? In the Holy of Holies. Who can enter the Holy of Holies? Only the high priest. How often? Once a year. That on the Day of Atonement. We're not told any of this detail. These soldiers turn up and I assume with Hophni and Phineas, perhaps the leading priests at this time, they take the ark out of the Holy of Holies and they march it back to Ebenezer, to the army. Even that within itself, without the Lord's direction, is offensive to him, to sin. So they bring the ark into the camp, onto the battlefield. Their attitude is almost like, this is like a good luck charm. Uh, God is like a a giant German shepherd and we've got him on a leash and we've brought him into the battlefield. and All we're going to do is release him and he'll win the battle for us. That's also insulting and dishonouring to God. Israel, at this point, their leaders are being foolish. They believe in somehow using the ark like a religious talisman, like a good luck charm. And people in our world do, don't they? Do you walk under ladders? Some people don't, you know. Apparently, it's supposed to be bad luck. I deliberately walk under ladders. Some people are afraid of black cats. I kick like cats. <laughs> I'm <am> speaking metaphorically. <laughs> I have. No, I can't say that. <laughs> Broken mirrors, seven years bad luck. Number 13, bad luck. Specifically if it's on A. <laughs> See, you know. Sports people have their own good luck things, their own particular routines they go through. Students have lucky pens. People have lucky numbers they use in their lotto. When you do your lotto numbers, do you use the same numbers? <laughs> we shouldn't back lotto, should we? No, you shouldn't. And if you do and if you win, just tithe it and everything will be okay. <laughs> Don't do it. Um, had a wedding yesterday, James and Simone. What's the bride supposed to wear? Something old? Something borrowed? Something? How do you know that? Something what? Used? Oh, new. (laughs) Something used? Where did that come from? I would dare say that if there's some old tradition or custom, some old wives tale, that if she doesn't then it won't be a good marriage. There are also religious charms, aren't there? Crosses and prayers and particular medallions you can put in your car and things like that. Well, for the Israelites, it was the ark. They were using the ark like a good luck charm. I've told you this story before. When I went to high school, year seven, New South Wales, first year was year seven, the Gideons came. Praise the Lord for the Gideons. And I was given a little red New Testament. I didn't have a Bible. This is the first Bible I ever had in my life. And so I took it home. I received it gratefully and I took it home and I thought, this will bring me... This will bring me luck. So I held it with reverence. I read it every night. Matthew chapter 1. This is part of my own spiritual journey. This is first year of high school. So I'm about, what, 12, 13, something like that? And I'm reading Matthew chapter 1 and praying the only prayer that I know, which is the Lord's Prayer. So I'd read Matthew chapter 1, which, for those, it's the genealogy of Jesus. This is the gospel of, you know, Jesus, son of Abraham, son of David. Abraham gave birth to Isaac. Isaac gave birth to Jacob. Jacob gave birth to this. I read that every night for three weeks. The reason I read it every night because I'd come to it the next night and I would go, what did I read the night before? I don't remember. So I'd read it again and then I would pray the Lord's Prayer. And then on every Friday we had a science test. I can remember this as clear as anything and I would take the Gideon New Testament with me, I would put it in my school bag and we would go and on every Friday we had this science exam, a double period. And just before the exam, I don't know if the exam was second period anyway, there was an opportunity I had to get out of the classroom and I would go to my bag, I would touch my New Testament, hold it, put it back, go back and do the exam and would score 96%. Three weeks in a row. Don't tell me religious charms don't work. (laughs) Next week, the third week, the fourth week, when I went to grab the New Testament, someone was beside me and they saw me reaching for the New Testament. You don't still have that, do you? No, I don't. I didn't do as well that day. Ever since then, all through theological college, I would touch that little red New Testament. (laughs) Not true either. Religious charms. I wonder if you have some religious superstitions. Well, like I said, for the Israelites, it was the Ark. And they would bring the Ark, which was a God-appointed, God-directed piece of furniture, if you like, for the temple. It was highly symbolic. It was highly significant. It was the place where God promised to meet with Moses and with his people. It was covered by the top of it, which was called the mercy seat. It's the place of forgiveness. Uh, the ark was a symbol of the presence of God, the invisible, living God. That He was the, it's a throne, so he is the ruling one. It's a place of communion, so he is the speaking one. And it's the place of forgiveness, the mercy seat. He is the forgiving one. The living God is ruling, speaking and a forgiving God. That's what it represented. And the ark, in God's direction, led the people of Israel through the wilderness and also against their enemies on a couple of occasions, crossing the Red Sea, Jericho as I indicated. And in fact in Numbers chapter 10 there is a statement that Moses gives when they lift up the ark and carry it out in the special instructions they would say these words, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. I wonder if that was in the mind of the elders of Israel on this occasion. Arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered. Their thinking though was incorrect. They were using God to achieve their purposes. They were not listening to God so that they might achieve his purposes. So when the ark arrives, Israel in verse 5 is very enthusiastic. God is good for their morale. The ark might be with them, but God is against them. Before I go on, are there any possibility, maybe we don't call it, you know, good luck charms because we don't believe in luck. We believe in a sovereign God. But I wonder if there's any thinking that permeates us in terms of our habits or our practices where we are not too far from that, where we think that if we do this, God will be obligated to do that. If we read our Bible every day, God will bless me that I'm doing these religious experiences, practices, habits, in order for me to get God to do something for me. What's behind the 24-hour prayer vigil motivating our hearts? Is it because we want to seek God and listen to him? Or is it erroneously driven by, well, if we pray, God will do this. Talk about Motivation need to watch our own hearts. There's a beautiful old chorus that we sing on Revelation 4.11, Thou art worthy. Well, this attitude and the attitude of the Israelites here is, Thou art useful. I can use you to achieve my goals, my purposes. God, in fact, is uncontrollable. You cannot manipulate him. But he is very gracious and he is very kind and as we will find in this story, he is also very just. The result, um, the ark is in the camp, Israel shouts, the Philistines are scared stiff. They've heard stories about Israel and the ark and previous things. They get it a bit mixed up. They think the plagues happened in the desert, so they've got a few stories mixed up. Um, but nonetheless, they're aware of the God of Israel, but they don't believe He's sovereign they still believe in Dagon, their God, is sovereign. So they rally themselves. It's a bit ironic, isn't it? The Israelites brought the ark into the camp in order to defeat the Philistines. God allowed them to take the ark in disobedience because he intended to judge the Israelites and he was going to use the Philistines to do it. God allowed his people to do something wrong and God was going to use even that to achieve his purposes. Luke 22, verse 22. 22, 22. Easy to remember. It's where the Lord Jesus is speaking, and he talks about how the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. You know, providence, sovereignty of God, plan of God. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed. He'll go to the cross and he will die. But woe to that person by whom he is betrayed. Human responsibility. You get this wonderful blend in the scriptures between God's sovereignty and working His purposes out and human choice, human responsibility, human involvement. God working through us in our circumstances to achieve His purposes. God can work in our circumstances, with our circumstances, through our circumstances, and God can work despite your circumstances. He can do the exact opposite. When he chooses to do so. Well, the result's absolutely disastrous. Is The Philistines are now geed up, pumped up in their own strength nonetheless, but they come against Israel. There's another clash of armies. And this day, there are 30,000 Israelites. And it's so devastating. There is bloodshed everywhere. The Israelites panic and they flee. They flee for home. They run away. The press lines in the papers that night would have said something like, Disaster. Yahweh's presence was decimated. After a great showing initially on the field of battle, Yahweh, the God of Israel, has proved ineffective, unable to deliver as he did before. God has been defeated. God has been captured. God lost. It's interesting, God allows that to happen, isn't it? But he'll do it again in history there will be another time where God will be defeated, where God will appear to have lost. But that was Friday. On Sunday, the truth is revealed. God was not defeated, only seemingly. God, in fact, was not dishonoured. He appeared to be. But he, in fact, is at work to restore the honour of his name. He may very well have been despised in Shiloh and now in Philistia, in Philistine territory, but not for long. God is quietly going about the business of fulfilling his word. Don't miss that in this story. God is in the process of working in the world and through circumstances achieving his purposes in the midst of Israel, suffering great losses. 34,000 people dead of the corrupt priests being removed, Hophni and Phineas, amidst the great tragedy of the ark being captured and being a blot on his own reputation. Yet God is continuing to go about the task of doing what he said he would do. He is fulfilling his word. He is carrying out his judgment. And I think in the judgment against the Philistines, he is also witnessing to them. He is letting them know that he is God and that they should bow before him. Israel is decimated. The Philistines are jubilant. They take the ark. They return to their territory. A man from Benjamin runs to Shiloh, runs to the capital city where Eli is, spreading the news. There is Eli, 98, overweight, blind, the Bible says that his eyes are fixed. They no longer move, staring straight ahead. He's sitting beside the road, listening, waiting anxiously. What's the news? Had he given permission for the ark to be taken? Not told. But here he is now, worried about the ark. Not worried about his sons, worried about the ark. And the news comes, and he hears the shout in the city, and eventually the news is told to him. And he is shocked. He faints, collapses, falls backwards, next breaks and he dies on the same day as his two sons. And then in a tent somewhere else, in a house somewhere else in the city, his daughter-in-law will also go into early labour and she too will die and issue the word Ichabod. No glory. It's gone. God is gone. Israel is forsaken. God is handed over to the nations for judgement God is judging himself. It's pointing forward to the cross. God will do it exactly again. Forsaken. Handed over. Judged. It looks like God is losing, but he isn't. He's simply at work. You need to go into the next chapter because that's where it gets really exciting and I'm just going to pinch a little bit of Josh's thunder so far we've said this, that God is uncontrollable. He is the sovereign God. He's not a religious charm that you can use for your own purposes. Uh, that while God is uncontrollable, he does allow himself to be captured, defeated, dishonoured. Romans 2.24 in fact says that God's name is blasphemed among the nations because of you. Paul's referring to the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, but it could equally apply to us. God's name is blasphemed amongst the the nations, amongst unbelievers, because of us, because of our inconsistencies. God is uncontrollable. God can be captured. God was captured. But God always wins in the end. He is uncontrollable, indefeatable. God always wins. Chapter 5, the Philistines quickly take the ark. They take it to the back to Ashdod, they take it to the temple of their god Dagon and they bring the ark in and they put it before the footstool, the feet of Dagon who's on this pedestal because the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel, now is in subservience to this mighty God. He has been conquered. He's been defeated. He must bow before Dagon. Philistines are in for a shock. They go off, they have their party, they're celebrating. They wake up the next morning when they come in Dagon's off his pedestal and he's on his face before the ark. He's worshipping the true and living God, represented by the ark. That's no good. The Philistines didn't think so. They picked their God up, just like Psalm 115 says. They put him back on his pedestal. See, false gods need help. And they leave again. And once again, the Philistines are in for an incredible shock. When they come the next morning, Dagon is not only off his pedestal, he's not only prostrate before the ark. His hands have been cut off and he's been decapitated and his head is in the threshold of the temple. He has been utterly defeated. That's what they did to the enemies in the old days when they fully conquered them, decapitated them and removed their left and right hands. Dagon is not the superior god, Yahweh is. That's the point. God always wins. And God is not just judging the Philistines, God is shouting to the Philistines, I am God, bow before me, serve me. People of Ashdod thought this is too hard so they moved him to the next city, the ark. Same thing happens, plague breaks out, judgement comes on the city. God witnessing to them through judgement but they don't turn their hearts to him, they're in rebellion against him. Move it to the next city, the next city, the next city, to all five cities and eventually they send it back. That's basically the story. God always wins in the end, just like Jesus. Came into the world, seemingly suffered defeat on Calvary's cross, but on Sunday rose victorious, ascended on high, rules in heaven now, one day will return. God will establish his king and he wants to establish that king in our lives now. None of these events happened by accident. They're all part of God's plan, God working things out to discipline his people, to remove sinners and to establish his kingdom. Here are three quick things about this passage that we learn about God. Number one, apply this to your own heart and life. Think about these things. God hates sin, still does. And he judges sinners who will not repent. God hates it. He hates rebellion against himself and he will deal with it. It might be delayed like it was for Hophni and Phinehas. They were... Warned, they were warned again. There was time for them to repent. They don't take it, unlike the city of Nineveh with Jonah's warning. It may be delayed, but that's only an indication of God's patience and mercy, not of his unwillingness or inability to act. He will act. And sometimes in very surprising ways, we cannot have secret sin tucked away in our life hidden from each other's view but it's not hidden from God he hates it and he will act to deal with it he will orchestrate circumstances in your life he'll wake you up in the middle of the night he'll do whatever he wants to do to get your attention for you to make a choice like the Philist- like the israelite leaders lord why is this happening search your heart consult god listen to him get your life aligned with him as opposed to Why did this bad? This is what I'll do. And plan and plot and try to live your life without God. It's disastrous. The Bible invites us not to conceal our sin, but rather to expose it before God, to seek his mercy, and he promises to grant us forgiveness and grace, restoration. God hates sin, and he judges sinners who will not repent. Don't let that be true for you. Number two... God is uncontrollable. He cannot be used, manipulated. He can't be put on a leash and trained to do our will. He can't be coerced. It's the reverse, in fact. God owns us. He trains us. We obey him. So we are to seek his will, his ways, in the circumstances of our life. Thirdly, God is also so powerful, so mighty. He can keep his promise with ease. He can carry out his judgment without anybody's help. He can do it all by himself. He can defeat his enemies single-handedly. The nation of Israel gathered against the Philistines and 34,000 people died. The ark gets captured and taken amongst the Philistines and God single-handedly decimates them city by city. He is a sovereign, powerful God, can do the impossible. Is your marriage in trouble? Pray to him and ask him to intervene. Is business in trouble? Are the kids going off the rail? Relationships in the wider family? Something's gone wrong? Pray to him. Ask him, Lord, what are you doing? What do you want me to do? and go there, follow him, because he's the one who is in control. What about some application and truth for ourselves? If our God is like that, and he is, then we, we, his people, ought to be filled with dread at defying him, or challenging him, or trying to use him. And if we are not filled with caution, if we are not filled with, deep respect, fear, trembling. He is our loving Heavenly Father who is awesome and powerful. If we are not respectful, if we are not careful, then we have no idea who we are dealing with. The Lord Jesus appeared to his favourite disciple, John, on the island of Patmos. And when John turned to see his beloved Lord Jesus... In all of his glory, he collapsed in his presence. That's our Lord. That's the one we are to listen to and follow in the here and now. This passage also reveals to us some responses. There's Israel's response. They wanted to use God for themselves. They would do whatever they thought they could do in order to get God to do their bidding. That's a silly thing to do. If you find yourself in church today because you're here, because you want to try and influence God or manipulate God, then your motivation is wrong. You're in the right place but for the wrong reasons. And you may very well find yourself in a place like this because God has something he wants to say to you, perhaps this message. You can't use him, you can't manipulate him. He is sovereign Lord and you are to be humbled before him, listening for what he wants. That's the response of Israel. They thought they could use God. Or there is the response of Eli. I don't think there are many amongst us who would be like this, but there might be some. People who are resigned to like fatalism. God is sovereign and I can't do anything. That just makes me lazy. Que Sarah, What will be, will be. Eli was warned twice and his response was, it's the Lord. I can't do anything about it. It's the wrong response. God warned him because God was trying to motivate him to repent. That's the story of David when he did those awful things, committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband and she gets pregnant and then God tells him the child will die. What's David's response? Well, it's the Lord. He's going to do whatever he wants to do. Uh -uh. It's the Lord. He told me what he's going to do. But I know what God's like. I know that he's a God of mercy I know he's a God who responds when people humble themselves and seek his face and are sorry and repentant and fully available to him. Sometimes he changes things. So David seeks God's face, doesn't eat, fasts, prays all night. The servants are worried about him. What are you doing? Well, God said that, but I'm seeking his face to try and get him to reverse that, to change that. That should be our response. Seek God for his mercy, not like Eli. Not use any excuse to remain comfortable and to do nothing. Not to shrug our shoulders and say, what can we do? We can do exactly what God invites us to do. What he instructs us in the word, pray, walk in obedience. Or there's the response of the Philistines. The presence of God in the camp motivated them to fight. They believed their God was greater. God, Yahweh showed up showed them otherwise. Dagon is conquered, annihilated, worshipping him and they send him away. They refuse to have anything to do with him. That's the attitude of the Pharisees or the Jews to the Lord Jesus. We do not want this man to rule over us. We see you are a powerful God but not for us. They reject him and they will suffer the consequences. So all of this... God is a God who judges and hates sin. Repent of your sin. God is a God who is all powerful. He can do things all by himself. He doesn't need us. God is uncontrollable. We should be in dread of defying him. We are his servants. His responsible agents who one day will have to give an account to him. We are not volunteers. We are stewards. He has resourced us, given us gifts and abilities, talents, as well as other resources, and says, use those responsibly. He has resourced us, sent us, and he expects us to act, to be involved. That's the letter A in our word grace. Grace. For this year, genuine truth tellers, receptive hearers, active participants, active. We are responsible agents and we are to work with him in what he is doing, which is in the process of transforming people into being passionate followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. It begins here, it begins with us, it begins with you, me. God working in us to transform us into passionate followers of Jesus. And then we ought to draw a circle around ourselves and put ourselves in the middle of it. And anybody who comes into that circle in our relationships or family or work colleagues, God has us in relationship, in a network with them to influence them to being passionate followers of Jesus. So make a list. Pray for these people. Pray for your family. Pray for your work colleagues. Come on the second Sunday of each month where Pastor David is holding a prayer meeting in order to pray for the people who are in our circle who are lost. Come together to pray to the God who hears prayer and answers it. To the God who is orchestrating circumstances to achieve his will. It's not the factions of the Labor Party. It's not the elections of the people of the democracy of Australia. It's the sovereign God on the throne of heaven who is working his purposes out and invites us to join him in it. Let's keep our eyes on him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that you are the king on the throne, the ruler of nations. You're the God of all power who can reverse circumstances. You're the one who has revealed the Father to us. You're the one who redeems us from our sin, who resources us for service, who calls us to walk with you, to keep our eyes on you, in the ups and the downs and the twists and the turns. Lord, reign in us. Live through us. Bring glory to yourself through us, your people. And we pray this, Lord Jesus, in your great name. Amen.